Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 64 of the show. It's another solid episode for you this week. We have Super Bowl 56 that has been played. The Los Angeles Rams are the world champs, so we will get into a recap of that game and how all that went down. We'll also recap just an incredible weekend of PGA Tour golf at the Waste Management Phoenix Open. Just an unbelievable scene there in Scottsdale. We'll look at that and uh, preview this weekend's Genesis Invitational. We'll do some standings updates in the NBA and the NHL. And then, of course, um, we'll, we'll jump back into some college basketball, men's college basketball. It's been a while since we've done a rankings update there, so we'll get into that. And then the Around the Island segment is, uh, has much information for you, as, as it usually does, and uh, including some NFL honors that were handed out. So we'll get into all of that. But we're going to start in the PGA Tour. Uh, this past weekend's tournament was the Waste Management Phoenix Open. That was held at TPC Scottsdale in Scottsdale, Arizona. Par 71, distance was 7,261 yards. Uh, This is one of the nicer courses on tour. It's in a great area. It's always in immaculate condition. But it's simply one of the best atmospheres on tour. Uh, That par 3 16th hole uh, there at TPC Scottsdale with the uh, triple-decker Stands uh, 17,000 people around that hole on the weekend. Uh, just unbelievable. Last couple of years, we've had limited or no fans in attendance. So this year, we got back to normal. And uh, we'll get into just how unbelievably rocking it was there on that 16th hole. The field for this tournament was pretty stacked. We had six of the top 18 ranked golfers in the world that were out there, including three of the top four. John Rahm, Victor Hovland, Patrick Cantlay, Justin Thomas, Sanders Shoffley, Hideki Matsuyama, Brooks Kepka, Jordan Spieth, just to name a few. Uh, Matsuyama had won this thing twice. Brooks Kepka was the defending champ, so it was shaping up to be a really good weekend, and it was just that. Uh, the tournament itself was just absolute banana land. Uh, the, I mentioned that par 3 16th hole. On Saturday and Sunday, the weekend rounds, they had over 17,000 fans just sitting around that hole. Uh, of course, the players, they encourage noise in their backswing, you know, just cheer the fans cheering. If you hit the green, you get cheered um, if you're close. If you're within, if you're anything further than about 15 feet away from the hole, you got booed, uh, even if you were on the green. And if you missed the green, oh boy, uh, the boos rained down. But Saturday afternoon, late in the round, Sam Ryder came up to that par 3 16th, and he aced it, which sent the crowd into an absolute frenzy. Uh, we're talking beers, beer cans being thrown. Uh, there were you know people showering each other with beer. 
Uh, it was unbelievable. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Uh, just the, the aftermath of that Sam Ryder hole-in-one. It was incredible. It took him 15 minutes to clean up all the beer cans. And that was the first hole-in-one there at that hole in over six years. There were uh, 2,863 tee shots at that hole in between when Francesco Molinari aced it six years ago to when Sam Ryder aced it on Saturday. Uh, but then again on Sunday, early in the round on Sunday, Carlos Ortiz, he aced the hole. Uh, when Ryder did it, it was playing at 124, 124-yard front pin location. Carlos Ortiz had a 178-yard back pin location that he aced, and that sent the crowd into the same frenzy as when Ryder did it on Saturday. But there were just 33 tee shots between Sam Ryder's ace and Carlos Ortiz's ace. So we went from over 2,800 tee shots between the previous two to 33 uh, in between these last two. And it uh, <clears throat> been a while since we had two aces in the same uh, tournament at this hole. So, um, And then later in the round on Sunday, Harry Higgs and Joel Damon were playing together, and they had talked about, uh, they made a social media post Saturday night saying that if they got a certain amount of likes, they would take their shirts off on Sunday, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, Harry Higgs made a probably about an eight-foot putt for par, lifted his shirt up, fans were going nuts, throwing beer. I mean, it was just, it is literally one of the best, probably the best atmospheres in, in the game of golf, that par three 16th hole at TPC Scottsdale on a weekend day. Uh, there were still plenty of fans that crowded it on Thursday and Friday, but nothing compares to Saturday and Sunday. But when the golf was uh, all said and done, Scotty Scheffler was your winner with a score of 16 under par. And he did so. He beat Patrick Cantlay in three playoff holes. Uh, they replayed the uh, par 4 18th hole f- three times. The first two times they both parred. And the third time they played the hole, uh, Scotty Scheffler sank about a 20 to 25 foot birdie putt. It was not an easy putt, um, and he drained it. It was a his unbelievable putt. It was actually Scotty Scheffler's first career victory on the PGA Tour, which was hard to believe. He's a former Texas Longhorn, uh, was kind of a Ryder Cup. I don't want to say hero, so to speak, but uh, back in the Ryder Cup in the fall. He defeated John Rahm in Sunday's individual round uh, match play and uh, just complete shocker there. But he he's known to play some really good golf. And, uh, man, he's he's coming on fast. He's a great golfer. Uh, he certainly has many more victories lined up. But So Scheffler was your winner. He actually he officially won the tournament on Sunday, obviously, but he really won this thing on Saturday. Uh, he was only three under par heading into Saturday's third round, and he came out and shot a nine under 62. Just unbelievable round. He was on 59 watch there for a minute. He, he, Scheffler had birdied seven of his first nine holes on Saturday uh, and ended up birdying a couple on the back. But uh, yeah, that 62 kind of got him up there, and then he went four under on Sunday to uh, force that playoff, and, of course, he won it. So... Scheffler is your winner. Patrick Cantlay obviously finishes second. Uh, he was also at 1,600, but uh, he lost in the playoff hole. Again, another top five finish for Cantlay, who I think he's got four consecutive uh, top five finishes in a row. Uh, he's just playing 
the very best golf on tour right now at the moment. You can probably book him for another top five this weekend. We'll get into that. Uh, there was a three-way tie for third place at 15 under par. Xander Shoffley, Brooks Kepka, and Sahith Thigala, who was making his 24th career PGA Tour start, uh, was a Corn Ferry Tour player last year, was playing on an exemption, and he actually held the lead uh, after each of the first three rounds. He was your, your leader after round one, uh, round two, and three. So uh, I think he he had to finish his first round on, on Friday morning, and I think he ended up bogey in those last two holes he had to play. So he may not have led after the first round, but he definitely was your leader after round two and round three. And he was in it all the way till the end on Sunday. He just bogeyed 17 and 18, which which took him out of it. But uh, great performance from Thigala. And then there were two at 14 under par. It was Billy Horschel, Alex Noren. And two at 13 under par, Justin Thomas and Hideki Matsuyama. So uh, just an incredible weekend of golf. Love Scottsdale. That, that course is incredible. And uh, what a fun time that was. Uh, certainly going to take a, a lot to live up to that. But this weekend's tournament is the Genesis Invitational, and that's at the Riviera Country Club, which is in Pacific Palisades, California. It's a par 71, distance 7,322 yards. So it's playing the same par as TPC Scottsdale and about 100 yards more. So uh, we returned back to California this week. Of course, we had spent a couple weeks there uh, at Torrey Pines and Pebble Beach, then headed over to Arizona. Now we're back in California for this, uh, for a loaded field. All top 10 ranked golfers in the world are going to be out there. Uh, John Robb, Colin Morikawa, Patrick Cantlay, Rory McIlroy, uh, Dustin Johnson, Justin Thomas, you know, Victor Hovland, Hideki Matsuyama. And then, of course, we also have, you know, Brooks Kepka, Jordan Spieth. They both played, well, Brooks played really well uh, this past weekend. But, um, so an unbelievable field of players. Uh, this is this is a major championship type field. Now, this is an invitational Genesis Invitational tournament. So it's it's a limited field of just over a hundred or just at one hundred and twenty players. The only other tournament so far this season that's been that way has been the Century Tournament of Champions, which, of course, just had uh, I think it was sixty players in that field. So um, second smallest field we've had on on tour this season. Um, Watch out for the California kids. Uh, Colin Morikawa, Patrick Cantlay, uh, you know, Max Homa's playing in this. He won it last year. He's from California. Watch for those three this week, um, especially, I mean, can you pencil Cantlay in for a top five finish? The guy's been incredible last month. I, loves playing in California. This course is right outside where he grew up. He's played it 100 times. Uh, and then Morikawa, his, the precision with his irons is going to play really well. Uh, on the tight fairways at Riviera. So uh, watch out for Morikawa, Cantlay, and Max Homa this weekend. I would not be surprised if any or all three finished inside the top 15. But uh, I'll definitely be tuned into that. I've been watching a lot of golf here lately now that football has been kind of dwindling down. So uh, I'll definitely be tuned into the Genesis this weekend. But we'll move over to the National Football League and... Recap Super Bowl 56, which was held this past weekend. It was at SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California. Featured the AFC champion Cincinnati Bengals against the 
NFC champion Los Angeles Rams, who were playing in their home stadium. Second time in Super Bowl history that's happened. Also the second year in a row that that's happened. Uh, and just to bring you up to speed, I talked about it last week. I was 8-4 and four in my playoff predictions heading into the Super Bowl, and I picked the L.A. Rams to win the Super Bowl. And this was a good game all around. I uh, went back and forth. Now, you you probably if you're listening to this podcast, you probably like sports enough to where you watch the game. So I don't want to necessarily get into it too deep, but uh, we'll just run through a quick recap. Uh, L.A. got the ball to start the game. They punted three and out, or actually went four and out. <clears throat> five and out, rather. They only gained one yard on five plays. Uh, Cincinnati got the ball, turned it over on downs right about midfield. Uh, the Rams took it down, six plays, 50 yards. Beautiful 17-yard pass from Matt Stafford to Odell Beckham Jr. Uh, in, in the corner of the end zone, uh, went up and got it. It was just a good, good play all around, both by Stafford and Beckham. That gave the Rams a lead. A couple of punts later, Cincinnati settled for a field goal, there uh, towards the end of the first quarter, basically closed out the first quarter with a field goal to make it 7-3. Opening drive of the second half, uh, L.A. went six plays and 75 yards, and Matthew Stafford found Cooper Cup for an 11-yard touchdown. Now, I don't know how. Cup was wide open in the back of the end zone, and I'm not sh- not exactly sure how the hell he got that guy got that wide open uh, in that situation, but... Uh, such was the case. Now, the extra point uh, was a bit problematic. Johnny Hecker could not control the snap, so Matt Gay did not attempt to kick it. Uh, they ended up throwing some kind of wonky play, uh, didn't get it, so it was 13-3 to Los Angeles at this point. Uh, on that drive, um, I believe it was that drive. It may have been the drive after... And he, sometime in the second quarter, Odell Beckham Jr. got hurt. He tore his ACL. It was a non-contact knee injury. You could see him screaming in pain. Uh, you knew it was done. Uh, his night was done. But uh, Cincinnati had a big 12-play, 75-yard drive uh, after the Rams got that touchdown. They answered with the touchdown of their own, and it was a beautiful trick play from the six-yard line. Joe Mixon took the uh, the toss, looked like he was running out to the right, but he pulled up and found T. Higgins in the back of the end zone. So he, Joe Mixon threw a touchdown pass. It was actually the fifth non-quarterback to throw a touchdown pass in the Super Bowl. And it was actually Joe Mixon's first career touchdown pass, whether it was college or the NFL. Mixon had never thrown a touchdown pass at all in his career. So that was the first one there. And um, it was a beauty. I mean, he threw it a little high, but T. Higgins is, you know, 6'4", 6'5", so he went up and got it. Uh, So that was a good drive. Brought the Bengals back to within three. And then immediately after that play, uh, the Rams got the ball. They ran a few plays. And right about the two-minute warning, Matt Stafford ended up uh, trying to throw up basically a 43-yard touchdown pass to Van Jefferson, but Jesse Bates intercepted that at the uh, in the end zone to give Cincinnati the ball. Uh, and then we just uh, basically traded some punts before halftime. So it was uh, 13-10 heading into the half. The second half started off with a bang. 
the uh, Cincinnati Bengals got the ball to start the second half, and they only needed one play to go 75 yards after the touchback. They got the ball in the 25. Burrow launched a pass down the left sideline to T. Higgins, caught it, and ran all the way down for a touchdown. Took 12 seconds. Now, if you watch the replay, you saw that T. Higgins grabbed the face mask of Jalen Ramsey and threw him down, so the pass should have never happened, or the play should have never happened. It was a legit offensive face mask that wasn't called, but nonetheless, uh, the touchdown stood, put Cincinnati up 17-13, and then on the very next play of the game, you have the kickoff after the touchdown, L.A. gets the ball, they're on their 17-yard line, and Matt Stafford throws a pass that was intended for Ben Skoranek. It hit off his hands, and it was picked off by Chido Beowuzie at the 32-yard line, and he was hit pretty much as he caught it. So Cincinnati got the ball at the Rams' 31-yard line. Huge turning point in the game because since he took eight plays, they only went 11 yards, and all they could muster was a field goal off of that. So they were up 20-13 to 13 at this point, which uh, is obviously good. But uh, they should have had seven there instead of three. Uh, L.A. answered on the next drive with a 10-play drive that netted them a field goal to bring it to 20-16. to 16. And then we had a punt fest. The next seven possessions ended up in punts, all right? And by both teams combined, seven possessions were punts. And that brings us to uh, the 6-minute, 13-second mark of the fourth quarter. Los Angeles gets the ball on their own 21-yard line, and they proceed to put together a massive drive. And at one point in the drive early, uh, they, they went basically three plays, got nine yards. They went for it on fourth and one. This was a uh, gutsy call by Sean McVay. Took some stones to call this one. A wide receiver end around, Cooper Cup, on fourth and one from their own 30-yard line. Ran at seven yards, picked up the first down. Rams uh, threw a few more passes, uh, picked up some some more yards, including a big 22-yarder to Cooper Cup that got the, the Rams in business there. Um, once we got, the Rams got down to the uh, Cincinnati eight-yard line, all right, and it was the two-minute warning. Stafford threw a couple of incomplete passes. All right, that brought third and goal from the eight-yard line. Minute 47 left, all right, in the game. Third and goal from the eight. At this point in the game, there had only been four penalties called in the entire game. So the game thus far, you can say what you want about all the missed calls on both sides of the ball. Obviously, T. Higgins, the one that we talked about, probably be the most glaring, but there was some false starts on the Rams that weren't called, and a bunch of other stuff, whatever. The point is, is at this point in the game, the refs had not decided the game. And they picked a really bad time to intervene because on that third and goal play at uh, at Cincinnati 8, the pass that Stafford threw was intended for Cooper Cup as he was running along the goal line. Linebacker Logan Wilson made a terrific play on the coverage, knocked, uh, knocked the ball away, and uh, broke up the pass. It was incomplete, but they called him for defensive holding. That, folks, was not defensive holding. Uh, if anything, it was interference, but I don't even think it was that. I think it was straight up a good play 
a good breakup by Logan Wilson. And uh, so nonetheless, the refs called a penalty there, gave the Rams a first and goal from the Cincinnati four-yard line. On the very next play, Stafford threw a pass to Cooper Cup in the back of the end zone. It was caught for a touchdown, and he was smoked by Vaughn Bell uh, as he caught it in the head, head head-to-head contact. On that play, Rams offensive lineman Rob Havenstein, he got a holding penalty, but so did Vaughn Bell. He got an unnecessary roughness penalty for hitting Cooper Cup in the head. So that two penalties on that one play wiped out the touchdown, replay first and goal from the Cincinnati four-yard line. On that pass, Stafford threw a pass to Cooper Cup, and Eli Apple was called for defensive pass interference in the end zone, which was probably the appropriate call. So in those last three plays right there that we just talked about, minute 47 mark, minute 44 mark, and a minute 38 left in the game, there were four penalties called on three plays. Prior to that, there had been four penalties all game. So the refs doubled their penalty calling in the last two minutes there, and that completely changed the complexion of the game. Uh, They don't call that Logan Wilson pass. It's fourth and goal. The Rams are still obviously going for it, uh, and who knows what happens, okay? But um, the refs picked a bad time to intervene in this game the way they did. Now, I'm not saying that they decided the outcome of this game, but if they don't call that Logan Wilson hold, Cincinnati's or uh, LA's first down uh, at the Cincinnati four, that touchdown that was nullified because of those penalties, that play might be a different play call at that point. So who knows? But uh, the refs essentially changed this game in the matter of uh, nine seconds. That Those three plays took nine seconds off the clock, and uh, it completely changed the complexion of the game. So after that pass interference call in the end zone on Eli Apple, it's first and goal from the Cincinnati one. Stafford QB sneak didn't get it. And then second and goal from the one. Stafford threw a beautiful sideline fade over to Cooper Cup. Terrific catch, terrific pass all around. Everything about it was good. Touchdown uh, Rams on that to go up 23-20. to Cincinnati gets the ball with a minute 25 left in the game. Burrow hit a Jamar Chase for a 17-yard pass to open the drive. Then another 9-yard pass to Boyd. Looked like they were moving it pretty good. Uh, they ended up getting to the Rams' 49-yard line. You only needed about 10 yards to get McPherson in field goal range, maybe about eight. Uh, but on that, ended up getting to fourth and one. All right, on that fourth and one play, uh, Joe Burrow was pressured by who else other than Aaron Donald? Guy was an absolute monster in the second half. Completely quiet in the first half. Didn't have any tackles or sacks in the first half, but he had three tackles for a loss two sacks in the second half alone. He would have had a sack on this play had Joe Burrow not flung the ball forward towards Samaje Pirine. It obviously was incomplete, so that gave the Rams the ball back, and they just ran a, a QB kneel to end the game. The Los Angeles Rams are Super Bowl 56 champions by a score of 23-20. to 20. So I was correct on that prediction, uh, going 9-4 and four in my total playoff picks. Uh, but that that drive that Los Angeles put together at the end of the game there uh, was a 15-play, 79-yard drive, took 4 minutes and 48 seconds off the clock. It was the longest go-ahead drive in the second half in Super Bowl history. All right, And this was Stafford's third game-winning drive this postseason, which tied 
2007 Eli Manning for the most in a single postseason. Okay, now the story of this game was exactly what we talked about in last week's preview episode. It was a battle of the trenches. Okay, and I just kind of alluded to it: the Rams D line versus the Bengals O line. Okay, um, the Bengals O line did an okay job in the first half. Uh, Donald, Aaron Donald, and Von Miller weren't horribly active in that first half, but they turned on the Jets in the second half. Uh, Vaughn Miller added a sack of his own as well. So they had three sacks between the two of them. Uh, Joe Burrow was actually pressured on 55% of his dropbacks. And uh, the Rams' defensive line had a pass rush win rate of 86%, which is the highest pass rush win rate by any team in a single game this entire season. So they had Bengals' O-line picked a really, really bad game to, to let them down. The Rams actually had seven sacks in the game, which is tied for the most ever in a Super Bowl. Um, Burrow was sacked 19 times in the playoffs, which is an NFL record. And if you combine the playoff sacks with the, with the regular season sacks, he was sacked 70 times between the regular season and the playoffs. That's a problem, folks. Uh, you're, you're not going to win a whole lot of games when your quarterback's laying on the ground. And Burrow actually got rolled up on on one of those sacks and sprained his knee. So it looked like he was going to have to, like he possibly may have torn his ACL, but luckily he did not. He uh, he ended up coming back into the game and um, finishing the game, but uh, it has since been documented as a knee sprain. Now on the Rams side of things, this is their first Super Bowl win since 1999. It's their second in franchise history. And as I mentioned a little while ago, they're the second team ever to win the Super Bowl in their home stadium which was last year's Tampa Bay Buccaneers as the first, and they're also the fourth team ever to win the Super Bowl in their home state. Uh, the Rams are the third franchise to ever win a Super Bowl in multiple cities, joining the Raiders and the Colts. Uh, multiple cities as in, uh, you know, the franchise was located in, in multiple cities because when they won the Super Bowl in 99, they were the St. Louis Rams. Uh, head coach Sean McVay became the youngest coach in NFL history, to win a Super Bowl, the youngest head coach, that is. He's 36 years old and 20 days at the time of that victory. Now, Matthew Stafford, I mentioned he had three game-winning drives this postseason, only the second quarterback ever to do that. He also, during the entirety of the season, he had the highest QBR in the NFL in the fourth quarter of one-score games, and he also, in the fourth quarter, had 14 touchdown passes and zero interceptions this year. So he was electric in the fourth quarter, um, he won a Super Bowl. This is his 13th season in the league, Okay, which uh, ironically is the same season in which his high school baseball teammate, Clayton Kershaw, won his first World Series title in his 13th season. Uh, both of them obviously with Los Angeles-based teams, Stafford with the Rams, Kershaw with the Dodgers, so that was interesting. Your Super Bowl MVP was Cooper Cup, the wide receiver. He was the eighth wide receiver to win the Super Bowl MVP award, and he tied Larry Fitzgerald as the only two players in NFL history to catch a touchdown in four postseason games in a single postseason. It's the most games you play is four. He caught a touchdown in every single one of them. Larry Fitzgerald's the only other one to do that. Now, this is ridiculous. Cooper Cup, not only did he win the uh, Triple Crown in receiving this year, catches, yards, and touchdowns, but he also won Offensive Player of the Year, which we'll get to in a little bit. 
and he won Super Bowl MVP. Jerry Rice is the only other wide receiver in NFL history to do all of those things in a career. Cooper Cup did all of that in a season, a single season. So uh, that just goes to show you the absurdity of what we saw this year from Cooper Cup. Now on the Cincinnati Bengals side, uh, they fall to 0-3 in Super Bowls in franchise history. They're one of three teams that are winless in three or more Super Bowls, joining the Minnesota Vikings and the Buffalo Bills, who are both 0-4. Now, uh, interestingly enough about the Bills, their three Super Bowl losses have been by five points, four points, and three points. So all one-score games. Now, viewership for Super Bowl 56 was at 112.3 million viewers, which was up from 92 million viewers last year. It was the most watched TV show in the last five years. So single most viewed TV program in the last five years. Uh, Obviously, we had two newer teams to the Super Bowl. I mean, it's not like we were watching the Patriots or, you know, somebody that seems to be in around the playoffs every year. So that was probably a main reason. Uh, Not to mention football was great this year. But uh, that brings me basically to just if you're wondering where the next few Super Bowls are, okay, Super Bowl 57 next year is at State Farm Stadium in Glendale, Arizona. The year after that, Super Bowl 58, Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas, Nevada. That's going to be insanity. And then Super Bowl 59 is at Caesars Superdome in New Orleans. Uh, A quick look at the odds to win Super Bowl 57 next year. Uh, The Chiefs and the Bills are your favorites, followed by the Rams, the Cowboys, the 49ers, the Packers, the Bengals, the Ravens, the Broncos, and the Cleveland Browns. Tampa Bay Buccaneers are right after them, uh, along with Tennessee, Arizona, New England, and New Orleans. So uh, interesting to see those Super Bowl odds. I'm sure that'll change once we hit free agency here in a couple of weeks uh, and the draft. That'll all start changing. But as of right now, the Chiefs and the Bills are your favorites to win next year's Super Bowl. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League and do a standings update here. Of course, last week on the episode, we did not do a standings update. We just recapped the NHL's All-Star game. So there's been several more games played, and we're in the middle of that uh, two, two-and-a-half-week window that was designated originally for the Olympic break. But uh, they're using this to make up all the postponed games. So... Uh, we're right in the middle of that stretch now, so there's a lot of hockey that's been played. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on the standings updates just because uh, they're going to change drastically with all these games being played over the next couple weeks. So um, we're just going to do the wild card standings, which is the top three teams in each division, uh, plus the top two wild card teams remaining, uh, and a couple of contenders. In the Eastern Conference, the Metropolitan Division. The Pittsburgh Penguins are still up top there, or they've overtaken the top spot, I should say. They're 31-11-8. They've won four games in a row. Uh, The other night, Sidney Crosby scored his 500th career goal, becoming the 46th player in NHL history to do so, which is kind of a lot. I mean, I was kind of surprised to to see that uh, 45 other players in the league have 500 career goals, but uh, such is the case. Number two in the Metro Division, Carolina Hurricanes, 32-11-3. and 
and the, number three in the Metro New York Rangers, 31, 13, and four. They've won seven out of their last 10, including three in a row. So they're, they're still continuing to hang on. Chris Kreider uh, is up there with the league lead for goals. Um, fantastic season. Over in the Atlantic Division, Tampa Bay Lightning are up top there at 32, 11, and six. Florida Panthers are second at 32-10-5, and, and the Toronto Maple Leafs are 31-12-3. Now, all three of those teams have each won seven out of their last ten games, so uh, that division is getting pretty spicy. The wild card teams, the two that are in a wild card spot right now are the Washington Capitals at 27-15-9 and, and the Boston Bruins at 27-16-4. Now, the Bruins have only won four times in their last 10 games, uh, but they have 58 points. The first team out of a wild card spot is the Detroit Red Wings at 22, 22, and 6. They only have 50 points. Uh, Boston has three games in hand on them. So uh, Detroit's going to really have to play well over this next uh, month and a half if they want to be in the playoffs. And then uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets are really the only other team uh, that has a chance to make it at 23-23-1. Now, they have 47 points, so they're 11 points back of Boston. They're really going to have to get on their horse if they want to make the playoffs. But uh, over in the Western Conference, the Central Division, Colorado Avalanche up top there at 34-9-4. They've won eight out of their last ten. Now, they had a 19-game point streak uh, getting a, a point in at least 19 straight games. And um, that was ended the other night with a loss at home, ironically enough, to my Dallas Stars, who, again, the most bipolar team in hockey. Uh, but the good news for the Avalanche is that they did get Nathan McKinnon back uh, this week from his facial injury. He had gotten checked in the face and uh, kind of busted his nose up. But uh, the Avalanche have 72 points, which is by far the most in the Western Conference, uh, and it's not close. The second team in the Central is the Minnesota Wild at 30-11-3. They've also won eight out of their last ten, and they're legit. Uh, they're proving uh, each week that passes that they're going to be a team to be messed with in the playoffs. The third team in the Central Division is the St. Louis Blues at 28-14-5. Over in the Pacific Division, the Calgary Flames, uh, they are 27-13-6. They've won seven in a row, nine out of their last ten, and they just made a trade this past week. Um, they have acquired Tyler Toffoli from the Montreal Canadiens. Okay, huge get for them. Toffoli can score some goals, and in fact, he did score a goal in his Flames debut the other night uh, when they beat Columbus. So big pickup for Toffoli. Um, Calgary gave up uh, Tyler Pitlick, a prospect, and two draft picks. Uh, one of them was a first-round draft pick this upcoming draft. So I didn't. I mean, it did cost them a little bit, but uh, Calgary's all in on this year with Jacob Markstrom playing the way he's playing at a Vesna type level. The Flames are good. They they're not a team to be missed with, and they just added, you know, a, a perennial goal scorer in Tyler Toffoli. So watch out for them. Vegas is number two in the Pacific Division at 28-17-3. and three. Um, Good news, bad news for Vegas here. Uh, good news is this week they got Jack Eichel back into their starting lineup. Of course, they had traded for him back at the beginning of the season 
from Buffalo. Uh, he was re he had to have some kind of neck surgery. Uh, he has made a full recovery, and he has made his debut this week for Vegas. But the bad news is that they placed Mark Stone on long-term injured reserve. So who knows how long Stone is going to be out. I would assume probably the rest of the regular season. Um, maybe uh, he'll come back for the playoffs. Vegas is sitting comfortably uh, in that Pacific Division number two spot. Number three in the Pacific is the Edmonton Oilers at 26-18-3. Um, they have a three-game winning streak. Of course, they fired Dave Tippett, their coach. They had named a new interim coach in the meantime, and he's won three games in a row for them. So they've crawled back up into that number three spot in the Pacific. And the wild card situation in the Western Conference is absolutely crazy. Uh, it's much different than it is in the East. The top two teams in the wild card spots right now are the Nashville Predators at 28-17-4, even though they've lost three in a row, and the Los Angeles Kings at 24-17-7. Those are your two wild card teams. The Anaheim Ducks are just outside that. They're actually tied with the Kings for 55 points, uh, but the Ducks have played one more game. So the Ducks are currently the first team out of a wild card, and then my Dallas Stars. They're... Uh, 26, 19, and 2. They've won 7 out of their last 10. Uh, and they, like I said, this is this is Dallas Stars hockey. Lose 4 nothing at home to Colorado on Sunday. Go to Colorado on Tuesday and win 4-1. to um, That sums up their season right there. Um, look like complete trash one game and then completely come out and dominate. Jake Ottinger had 46 saves the other night in Colorado to get that win. Um I they're I, I don't see them making the playoffs. They have fifty four points, which is only one point back of LA. Um, but I just uh, at this point, like I said, I I would I'm not counting on the stars to make the playoffs. And then the uh, the only other teams really that have a chance to make the playoffs mathematically would be Vancouver, Winnipeg, and San Jose. Vancouver's got fifty points. Winnipeg's got forty eight. San Jose has forty eight. Okay, and right now the Kings have 55, which is the second wild card spot. So they're only seven points back, those three teams. But uh, Vancouver's five. Winnipeg and San Jose are seven. But um, so the Western Conference is still wide, wide open. All right. Eastern Conference is pretty much becoming more set in stone with each week that passes, whereas the Western Conference is, um, is, is still a tight race. Now, like I said, we're in the middle. Most teams have played uh, between 45 to 50 games or so, but we're in that middle of that stretch where, where they're knocking out a lot of games here in these next couple weeks. So stay tuned on that, and we'll we'll check these standings out on next week's episode. But we'll move over to the NBA, do a standings update here. And if you recall, last week's episode, we talked about all of the major trade deadline deals that went down and uh, what you know how the impact was going to be with each of those trades. And we've had about a week since those have gone down, so we'll see how they have affected the standings. Uh, first place in the Eastern Conference at the moment is the Miami Heat, 37-21. and 21. They actually have the same record as the Chicago Bulls who are listed as second in the East, also at 37-21. and 21. They've won four games in a row. Now, DeMar DeRozan for the Bulls, he's had six consecutive games with 35-plus points on 50% or better shooting. Uh, 
which ties the longest such streak in NBA history. Wilt Chamberlain did that twice. So pretty good company there. He's playing on another level right now. Uh, Milwaukee Bucks are third in the East at 36 and 23. Cleveland Cavaliers fourth at 35 and 23. Philadelphia 76ers are fifth in the East at 34 and 23. Now James Harden has not played. Of course, they acquired him in that massive trade in which they got rid of Ben Simmons. So Harden has not played yet for the 76ers. And they took it on the chin the other night uh, at home against Boston, who the Celtics are the number six seed in the Eastern Conference at 34-25. and 25. They've won nine games in a row. And I mentioned they're the hottest team in the NBA right now. And I mentioned that beatdown of Philly the other night. The Celtics beat the 76ers by 48 points uh, this past Tuesday to become the first team in NBA history to win three straight road games by at least 30 points. I mean, that's absurd. Boston's not just winning. They're killing folks right now. And uh, look out. They keep, I mean, they have the talent. This isn't surprising, you know. Uh, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, you know, I mean, that duo, uh, Marcus Smart, you know, I, it, the team is good, um, so it's not surprising. But uh, watch out for Boston. They keep ascending to the top of the East here. Uh, number seven seed is the Toronto Raptors at 31-25. and 25. Brooklyn Nets are down in the eighth spot at 30-27, and 27, okay? They've only won once uh, in their last 12 games, okay? They acquired, of course, Ben Simmons, Seth Curry and Andre Drummond from Philadelphia in that trade for James Harden. Uh, Simmons has not played yet, but uh, Seth Curry and Andre Drummond both made their Nets debut the other night. The Nets actually won that game uh, in which they debuted, ending an 11-game losing streak. Uh, Seth Curry had 23 points, 7 rebounds, and 5 assists, and Andre Drummond had 11 points and 9 rebounds. And just over two and a half weeks ago, the Nets were first place in the East and the title favorites. And now they sit eighth in the East with a completely different look. Um, Kevin Durant should be coming back soon. But uh, either way, I I think the the Nets did well by getting Curry, Drummond, and Simmons. And Simmons should be making his debut here soon. Uh, Charlotte Hornets are the ninth seed in the East, 29 and 30. Atlanta Hawks are the 10th seed at 27 and 30. And then uh, really the only two teams in the East that have a chance to get into the play-in tournament, the Washington Wizards and the New York Knicks. Both of them, uh, Wizards are a half game back of the Hawks, and the Knicks are uh, two and a half games back of the Hawks. So keep an eye on those teams. Over in the Western Conference, Phoenix Suns, 47 and 10. Six-game winning streak. I feel like it's the same thing with them every week. Every time we go through these standings, the Suns have won nine out of the last ten, and they've won at least six or seven games in a row. Um, they're just they're five and a half games in front of the Golden State Warriors, who are forty-two and sixteen. They've Golden State's won seven out of their last ten. Uh, those will be your top two teams in the West for sure. Although Memphis. Memphis is only a game and a half back of Golden State in that three spot right now, 41-18. and 18. They've also won nine out of their last ten, including six in a row. 
The Utah Jazz are the fourth seed in the West at 36 and 21. They've won six in a row. And then uh, my Dallas Mavericks are fifth in the West at 34 and 24. They've won seven out of their last 10. Uh, big win in Miami the other night. Number six, the Denver Nuggets at 32 and 35. The number seven seed, Minnesota Timberwolves, 31 and 27. Eight is the Los Angeles Clippers, 29 and 31. Ninth seed in the West, Los Angeles Lakers, 26 and 31. They've lost three in a row. Russell Westbrook is in shambles. I don't know what's going on with that team, but I do know that the other night, LeBron James passed Kareem Abdul Jabbar for the most combined points between a regular season and playoffs in NBA history. So uh, that number is 44,150 points between uh, regular season and playoffs combined. And he passed the legend himself for that. Um, it's only a matter of time, really. Um, Portland Trailblazers are the 10th seed at 34. And, or 24 and 34 rather and uh, they traded CJ McCollum at the trade deadline last week and since then they've done nothing but win three games in a row so it uh, doesn't make sense but uh, it is what it is the New Orleans Pelicans San Antonio Spurs and Sacramento Kings are the first three teams out of the play-in tournament at the moment they're really the only teams that have a chance to get in New Orleans is a game behind Portland, uh, San Antonio's two games behind, and Sacramento's two and a half games behind Portland for that 10th spot. Uh, This team is not in the playoffs, but I figured I needed to mention this. The Oklahoma City Thunder uh, rookie forward Josh Giddey. He's one of the youngest players. I think he is the youngest player in the league, one of them. He had back-to-back triple doubles this past week, which made him the youngest player in NBA history to do so. Okay, Giddy is only 19 years old and 127 days at the time he did that, which passed Luka Doncic, who had done that just a year or two ago when he was 20 years old and 26 days when he did that. So uh, Giddy's a good young player, and they have a lot of pieces to build around there in Oklahoma City with all their draft capital they have over the next five to seven years. So, uh but the Thunder and the Rockets, uh, they're not going to be in the playoffs. But uh, we're coming up on the NBA All-Star Weekend, which we'll go over the uh, All-Star rosters in the Around the Island segment. But uh, most teams have played between uh, 55 to 60 games here in the NBA. So uh, we're, we're about two-thirds of the way through the regular season. But we'll move over to the NCAA, talk about men's college basketball. It's been about four or five episodes since we've done a, an AP Top 25 rankings update here in college basketball, so we'll get that knocked out. A lot of the teams uh, are similar to what they were back then, uh, but the, the order has just been kind of jumbled up. We've also had some new teams uh, enter the mix, but we'll work backwards from 25 down to 1. Number 25 is the Alabama Crimson Tide. Uh, they have a strange resume. They have some very impressive wins, including one over Gonzaga. They've also had some highly questionable losses as well. So a uh, very strange resume, but when they get it going, uh, they are a good team. Number 24 is UConn. Uh, they, you know, they didn't start off the season great, uh, but they've turned it around 
and they're looking good at the right time. Number 23 is Arkansas. Uh, they took down an undefeated Auburn team a couple weeks ago. So they're certainly capable of competing in that SEC West. Number 22 is Wyoming. They're probably the team nobody really kind of talks about or knows about, so to speak. I mean, they're in the Mountain West, uh, but they're they're off to a 21-3 and three record so far. So they're, they look like they're going to be uh, competitive, at least a tough out come March. Number 21, Murray State. Uh, the Racers, they, they're 24-2. and two. Now, they play in the Ohio Valley Conference, which obviously isn't ideal competition, but the record, your, your record is what you are, and uh, it's a great record. They're a great team. Um, we'll have to see, you know, where they end up uh, when, when bracketology is completed. Number 20 is my Texas Longhorns. They've put together another couple good wins this week, and um, they're up to number – 20. They had a big win against Kansas last week, beat Oklahoma in overtime this week. So they're they're looking good. Number 19, the Michigan State Spartans. All right. They did not start the year inside the top 25, which was very strange. But they have made it as high as inside the top 10 so far this year. They're down at 19 now. But, you know, Tom Izzo always coaches those kids up. They're going to be a tough out come late March. Number 18 is Ohio State. Uh, the Big Ten is just you know loaded with good teams, just like the Big 12 is. So uh, Ohio State certainly is going to be uh, in competition there for the Big Ten title. Number 17 is USC. Uh, they're 21-4. and four. Of course, they lost Evan Mobley uh, last year to the draft. But that hasn't seemed to affect them very much. They're uh, one of the better teams in the Pac-12. Number 16 is Tennessee. Uh, had a big win against Kentucky the other night. Number 15 is Wisconsin. Number 14 is Houston. They're 20-4. and four. Now, my, mind you, they were a Final Four team last year, uh, Houston was. And um, they've pretty much picked up where they left off. Number 13 is UCLA. They're seventeen and five. They were in the preseason top five, uh, top three, I think. Really, um, I would say it's been fairly disappointing uh, of a season for them, but uh, you know they still have you know a loaded roster, uh, and they'll be competitive here in the Pac-12 tournament. Number twelve is Illinois, another Big Ten team here. Um, you know, again, just that Big Ten is just rugged. Uh, number 11 is Texas Tech. Uh, they, they're another kind of strange resume. They've had some good wins, and then they've had some questionable losses. But um, they, that, those, guys, those guys can go. And uh, they beat Texas pretty good at home last week. Real tough environment to play in there in Lubbock when it gets going. So uh, certainly don't count out the Red Raiders from a, a Big 12 championship. And then the top 10 teams, number 10 is Villanova. They're nineteen and six, but I think they're they're probably a little better than their record would indicate. Uh, Jay Wright obviously can't count out his guys uh, come March. Number nine is Duke. They're twenty one and four. Um, four games is probably a little more than than they should have lost at this point, uh, but they're still Paulo Bancaro uh, is probably the best player in college basketball. 
Uh, he's going to be the, the first or second pick in the draft. Uh, and then, of course, their other starting four guys are, are really skilled as well. Duke, you know, it's Coach K's last year. I would fully expect Duke uh, to be one of the top contenders for the national title here uh, at the end of March. Number eight, Providence. The Friars are 21-2, and two, and uh, they uh, just continue to, to win. I mean, th- there's no other way to, to put it. Um, I, don't, I don't think their pedigree certainly isn't that of the rest of these other teams in the top ten, but, man, they can go, and uh, they, they keep continuing to prove that. Again, your record is what you are, and uh, Providence is a good team. Number seven is Baylor. They're 21-4. and four. Uh, they got demolished by Kansas last week by like 24 points. And just a month prior to that, they were undefeated and number one in the country. And uh, after that loss to Kansas, they had gone four and four in an eight-game span after starting off, I think, maybe 16-0 and or 17-0 and to start. Um, but they're obviously they're a good team. You know, Big 12 team, they're, they're good. Uh, certainly going to be in the mix for the Big 12 title and – uh, a national title, and then same can be said for number six, Kansas. They're twenty and four. Uh, they got beat on the road in Austin last week. That was a good game, uh, but Kansas is a solid team. Uh, Big Twelve is just loaded. Number five is Purdue. Uh, they're the best team in the Big Ten. Have been all year. Uh, they're twenty two and four. Um, they've had some really good wins. Jaden Ivey is going to be a top-five pick in the NBA draft. He just continues to put points up. Purdue is going to be very tough to beat. They have size and shooting, which is a good combo. Number four is Kentucky. They're 21-4. and four. They just lost the other night to Tennessee, but uh, Kentucky is uh, – they got, they got some NBA talent on that team as well. Number three, Arizona. They're 22-2. and two. They have played like the best team in the Pac-12, uh, despite UCLA getting all the preseason hype. Arizona has come out and played as the best team in the Pac-12, so they'll it'll be fun to watch that Pac-12 tournament. Number two is Auburn. Uh, they're twenty-three and two. They were actually number one for a couple of these weeks that we didn't cover college basketball. That was the first time they had ever been ranked number one in school history. So uh, they were. Uh, I think twenty one and one at one point before they lost, and uh, yeah, they're I mean they're a good team. Uh, obviously, it's not you play in the SEC tough conference, uh, and that record is not an accident. And then the number one ranked team is the Gonzaga Bulldogs, and they're twenty one and two. I love Gonzaga. Uh, Drew Timmy, Chet Holmgren, um, you know Rasir Bolton, Andrew Nembard, all those guys can put up points. In fact, I think in a game. Um, four different games this week. Each of those four starters scored 20 points in different games. Uh, so that shows you they can get scoring from anywhere. Uh, Chet Holmgren probably will be the first pick in the draft. Him or Paulo Bancaro from Duke. Those guys will be 1-2 in the draft. It's pretty clear at this point. Um, but, yeah, Gonzaga is going to be uh, probably a one seed to start the NCAA tournament. And speaking of that tournament, this is probably the most wide open that March Madness has been in a long time. Uh, there is not one or two clear-cut better-than-the-rest teams this year. Uh, I would not be surprised if any of those top ten teams that I just read uh, end up in the national championship game or win a national championship. 
Um, and you can even expand that to, you know, the top 15 or so. Uh, and, and it's just, it's going to be super competitive. Uh, this is shaping up really to be an awesome March Madness. And so uh, we'll try and keep you updated now that football's over. I uh, don't have a whole lot of NFL to recap. Uh, we'll, we'll try and keep college basketball here as a, as a mainstay, at least moving forward into March Madness. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island, and that is where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. And there's quite a bit to get into, um, particularly with the NFL and the MLB. We'll start off in the National Football League. The NFL honors were handed out last week. That's your end-of-the-year awards for players and coaches. Uh, the MVP of the NFL's regular season was Aaron Rodgers. It was his fourth MVP award, and he actually became the fifth player in NFL history to win the MVP in consecutive seasons. He won it last year as well. He joins Peyton Manning, Brett Favre, Joe Montana, and Jim Brown as the group to win consecutive NFL MVP awards. Uh, who knows what his future holds this year? There's a lot of talk that he won't be back in Green Bay, so we'll have to see on that. <clears throat> Your offensive player of the year, we mentioned this a little earlier, but it is Cooper Cup, wide receiver for the Los Angeles Rams. He had 145 catches, 1,947 yards, and 16 touchdowns receiving. He was only the fourth player ever to win the wide receiver triple crown, joining Jerry Rice, Sterling Sharp, and Steve Smith in that category. Your defensive player of the year was TJ Watt, the defensive end slash linebacker from the Pittsburgh Steelers. He led the NFL with 22 and a half sacks this season, which actually tied Michael Strahan's all-time single season sack record set over a decade ago. <clears throat> so he had a fantastic season. Cowboys rookie Micah Parsons finished near the top of that voting, but he did go home with some hardware of his own that we'll talk about in a second. Offensive Rookie of the Year, no surprise to anybody, it's Jamar Chase, wide receiver of the Cincinnati Bengals. Had 81 catches for 1,455 yards, which is an 18 yards per catch average. Uh, he had two different 200-yard receiving games during the regular season, which set uh, Bengals all-time rookie receiving yards mark, as well as the NFL's all-time rookie receiving yards mark, beating Justin Jefferson, his former LSU teammate, in that. Uh, your defensive rookie of the year is Micah Parsons, linebacker for the Dallas Cowboys. <clears throat> he had 84 tackles, 64 of which were solo. He forced three fumbles, three pass deflections. He had 12 tackles for a loss and 13 sacks, which is awesome. Uh, he played 901 snaps, 498 of those were at the linebacker position and 374 of those were at the defensive line spot as a D-end, edge rusher. So uh, they were able to get him um, utilized in multiple different ways. Dan Quinn did a fantastic job with that, and I would expect more of that to continue. He has blossomed into an absolute uh, rock star in the NFL, future All-Pro uh, every year it seems like. Your comeback player of the year award was Cincinnati Bengals quarterback Joe Burrow. Of course, he tore his ACL and his MCL back on November 22nd of 2020. Came back to throw for 4,611 yards this season with 34 touchdowns and 14 interceptions, all of which was done with a 
percent completion percentage. So, uh, terrific season for Burrow. Obviously, took the uh, Bengals to the Super Bowl. Then your coach of the year was Tennessee Titans coach Mike Vrabel. Uh, not only did the Titans win the uh, clinch the AFC's top spot as the number one seed heading into the playoffs, um, they had an NFL record ninety one players suit up during the regular season, which is uh, insane. I mean, like I said, it, it is an NFL record for the most players used during a single season because they lost Derrick Henry, A.J. Brown, and Julio Jones all for extended periods of time. And in that regular season, they ended up beating the Buffalo Bills, Kansas City Chiefs, and the Los Angeles Rams, uh, Super Bowl champion L.A. Rams. They had beat all three of those teams during the regular season uh, which was good enough to get Mike Vrabel a contract extension. So uh, those were the NFL honors that were handed out. Now, the NFL did announce their uh, 2022 Hall of Fame class. That had eight members in it. Uh, the first one, former Jacksonville Jaguars offensive tackle Tony Baselli. He played in the NFL from 1995 to 2001, He only, which is only six uh, six seasons. He only allowed 15 and a half sacks over 91 games and only had 11 career holding penalties. <clears throat> Pretty exceptional for uh, a tackle to go any length of career um, and, and have, you know, only 11 penalties. Second member of the Hall of Fame was Cliff Branch, wide receiver for the Oakland Raiders between 1972 and 1985. Three-time All-Pro, and he led the league in touchdowns twice, He's a three-time Super Bowl champion. Next member is Leroy Butler, safety for the Green Bay Packers from 1990 to 2001. He had 20 and a half career sacks as a safety, 13 forced fumbles, both of which are really good numbers. And then he's most famous for creating the Lambeau Leap, as we so often see. <clears throat> Next member is Sam Mills. He was a linebacker for the New Orleans Saints between 1986 and 1994. This dude, he's only 5 feet 9 inches tall, and he had seven seasons with over 100 tackles. So not a big guy, especially by today's standards, as a linebacker position in the NFL, but that did not stop him from being extremely productive. Next member of the class, uh, Richard Seymour, defensive lineman for the New England Patriots between 2001 to 2008, and then the Oakland Raiders from 2009 to 2012. He ended his career with 57 and a half sacks, three separate 50 tackle seasons, which is pretty impressive for a D lineman. He made seven Pro Bowls, three All Pro teams, and he's a three time Super Bowl champion with the Patriots. The next member of the Hall of Fame class, Bryant Young, a defensive tackle from the San Francisco 49ers from 1994 to 2007. He finished his career with 89 and a half sacks, including five seasons of at least eight sacks. So very productive there in the middle. And then the final two members are not players. The first one is a coach, Dick Vermeil. He coached the Philadelphia Eagles between 1976 and 1982 the St. Louis Rams between 1997 and 1999, and the Kansas City Chiefs from 2001 to 2005. His career record is only 120 in 109, so just barely above 500. But he did lead all three teams he coached to the playoffs um, 
two of which he took to the Super Bowl. And he won Super Bowl thirty nine with the St. Louis Rams. And uh, he coined the phrase, the greatest show on turf, with that uh, 1999 Super Bowl winning L.A. Rams team. So uh, I'm sure you hear greatest show on turf uh, still used to this day. And then the final member of the 2022 NFL Hall of Fame class is Art McNally. He was a former NFL official uh, and director of officiating. Basically, he started his NFL officiating career in 1959 uh, and ended it in 1991. And then he became a consultant from 91 to 94. And then he was the assistant supervisor of officials between 1995 to 2007. So he worked in the NFL from 1959 to 2007. He's basically, uh, he's what they call the foundation uh, of what modern football officiating looks like. And he's actually the first former on-field official to be elected into the Hall of Fame. So congrats to those eight individuals for their uh, Hall of Fame induction. But some other NFL news real quick. The Kyler Murray saga. I mentioned this last week uh, about how, um, you know, there was an Instagram situation where he deleted all his pictures of Cardinal him in Cardinals uniform. He unfollowed the Cardinals on Instagram Uh, Cardinals have removed all pictures of him, basically some petty stuff going back and forth. But reports came out this past week about why this feud existed. Um, ESPN's Chris Mortensen said that uh, Kyler Murray believes that he was set up for failure in the playoffs and that he was made to be the scapegoat. Basically, they were blaming him for the loss. And uh, the Cardinals organization has refuted that and said that Kyler Murray is self-centered, immature, and a finger pointer. And now Murray responded to those accusations saying that he's none of those and that he's a team guy and he goes hard for his team and anybody that has played with him can back him up on that. So, man, I don't know what to think about all that. Um, He's still got two years left max with the Cardinals. He'll be entering his fourth year this year in 2022 and they still have the fifth year option he's he's eligible for an extension now certainly don't know if he's going to get that um I I don't know what to think you know the Cardinals are a good team uh, and he's a big reason why so uh but there's plenty of teams that need quarterbacks especially the caliber of Kyler Murray so we will have to see on that for sure but uh stay tuned to that to that issue but over in Major League Baseball a little bit to go over here we're just over two months into the lockout, and uh, pitchers and catchers should have reported to spring training this past week. So we are officially at the point where the start of spring training and the regular season are going to be delayed uh, at this point. It's inevitable, which stinks. Uh, the uh, MLB has sent a proposal to Major League Baseball Players Association. Most recently, the proposal that the MLB sent has offered to change the tax penalties and the minimum salary structure to the locked out players. Um, The proposal is 130 pages and it eliminates draft pick penalties for teams exceeding the first threshold while raising the threshold from previous offers in the final three years of the deal. And commissioner Rob Manford said he hopes to make significant progress with this proposal. But the problem is is that while this proposal does make tweaks to the minimum salary structure and increasing its arbitration bonus offer pool, 
Uh, it also de- disincentivizes service time manipulation, all of which were things that the MLBPA was wanting. Uh, the proposal itself does not address revenue sharing or arbitration years, which are two of the major sticking points for the MLBPA. So uh, I don't know that this is going to bring everything to a head and uh, come to an agreement, but it is at least a step in the right direction. But they have to really get moving now in order to get this season going. Um, But some big news was Commissioner Manfred announced that the Major League Baseball owners have all unanimously agreed to a draft lottery and a universal designated hitter. So thank God on the universal DH. Um, I'm not a fan of the draft lottery myself. Uh, There's been a lot. I've talked about it several times over all these episodes that the NFL has the best draft system. The worst team picks first and the best team picks last. And, you know, hockey, basketball, they get too cute with the drafts and do these lotteries, um, which, you know, isn't the most fair way to do it. Now, I get, um, you know, if you recall last week's episode, I mentioned that the MLBPA wanted a system in which tanking was eliminated as a strategy. Uh, the draft lottery system doesn't necessarily prevent tanking, but it does help limit the effectiveness to any type of tanking since the draft order isn't set solely on your record like it is in the National Football League. So um, while I do like the NFL system better, it's it's more, I guess, fair, you could say. Um, the lottery system does help limit uh, the, the strategy of tanking. So, But the most important news is that we will no longer have to sit there and gouge our eyes out watching pitchers hit the ball because they will no longer be hitting. Uh, I would assume that this takes place uh, in this upcoming year whenever we get going with it. But the last piece of MLB news is that we did have a retirement this past week. Longtime Washington Nationals third baseman Ryan Zimmerman. He's officially retired after 17 years with the Nationals. And he retires as the Nationals' career leader in games, runs, hits, home runs, RBIs, total bases, and doubles. Okay, Uh, Pretty much every major offensive category, he leads the Nationals' franchise in those. Uh, I certainly don't think that's going to be enough to get him into the Hall of Fame, but it was still a very solid career nonetheless. Uh, Moving over to the NBA. The final All-Star rosters are set after the All-Star draft took place last week. Team LeBron versus Team Durant. Uh, I'm just going to run through how, basically, they alternated picks, right? So I think LeBron had the first pick, and then they alternated between LeBron and Durant. So Team LeBron's roster, as it it was after the draft, uh, of course, has himself, and he drafted Giannis Antetokounmpo, Steph Curry, DeMar DeRozan, uh, Nikola Jokic, Luka Doncic, Darius Garland, Chris Paul, Jimmy Butler, Donovan Mitchell, Fred Van Vliet, and James Harden. Now, note on James Harden, he was actually the very last pick of the draft. Uh, Kevin Durant passed on him with his last pick. So I guess Durant, uh, you know, former teammate with all that trades, you know, scenario going on, uh, he ended up passing on... James Harden, which gave him to LeBron, um, and 
side note on James Harden, he's actually going to miss the All-Star game due to his hamstring injury. So Cleveland Cavaliers center Jarrett Allen will, will be replacing him on the roster. Uh, but you look over to team Kevin Durant. Of course, Durant's not playing because of his injury. But he's got Joel Embiid, John Morant, Jason Tatum, Trey Young, uh, Andrew Wiggins, Devin Booker, Carl Anthony Towns, Zach Levine, DeJounte Murray, Chris Middleton, LaMelo Ball, and Rudy Gobert. And if I look at that, um, Team LeBron is going to win by 100. Uh, You got LeBron, Giannis, Steph, and Doncic, and Donovan Mitchell on the same team. Um, Yeah, I don't think I don't think they're they're losing. You know, Embiid obviously is you're probably the NBA's MVP at this point in the season. Uh, John Morant is is spectacular. Tatum, you know, as well. Trey Young. But, I mean, look at the names on that LeBron roster. So I, I'm going to say that Team LeBron wins the All-Star game, which is coming up uh, soon. But uh, some other NBA news real quick. The New York Knicks this past week set an NBA record, and it's not one that they uh, would have liked to have set. They ended up blowing a 28-point lead against the Brooklyn Nets the other night to become the first team in the last 25 seasons to blow three 20-point leads in a single month. This was third time the month of February that the Knicks blew a 20-point lead. Um, they're on the bubble for the playoffs, uh, the play-in tournament, like we talked about. That is not a way to get into the play-in tournament. Uh, if you have a 20-point lead in an NBA game, there's absolutely zero reason that you should lose that game. Okay, So uh, the Knicks are going in the wrong direction, and at this point, Uh, It doesn't look like they're going to be in the playoffs if they continue to uh, give up leads like that. Over in college football, uh, the University of Michigan and head coach Jim Harbaugh, they have agreed to a five-year contract extension, which this info comes on the heels of some drama about three weeks ago or so because Jim Harbaugh had interviewed with the Minnesota Vikings in the NFL for their head coaching position kind of caused a little bit of an uproar. He kind of snuck out of there uh, to go meet with the Vikings, kind of, you know, behind closed doors, and uh, caused a little bit of, of drama with University of Michigan. And once Harbaugh didn't get the Vikings job, he kind of had to do some ass-kissing and uh, making up with Michigan to uh, make it seem like he wanted to be there. Now, his performance at Michigan has indicated that he's – certainly got the program in the right direction so especially after their college football playoff appearance this year but uh, nonetheless the Michigan Wolverines have at least five more years of Jim Harbaugh now I'll close with this Uh, the city of angels Los Angeles California they have turned into the city of champions and the of course the Los Angeles Rams just won Super Bowl 56 with that win it's, uh, like I said, Los Angeles is officially a title town. That's the only city uh, in major pro sports to win an NFL, NBA, NHL, and MLB championship in the last decade. Okay, of course, you had the Rams in the NFL Super Bowl this year. The Dodgers won the World Series in 2020. The Lakers won the NBA title in 2020. And the Los Angeles Kings won the Stanley Cup in 2012 and 2014. So in the last decade, 
all four of Los Angeles's major pro sports teams have won their respective championships. So uh, that's pretty impressive. Uh, now, I know L.A. has a lot more teams than some other markets do, uh, but nonetheless, it still is uh, very impressive to have that resume as a city. So, uh, But that's going to wrap up the 64th episode of the podcast. Um, got another good weekend for you, some golf, uh, Genesis Invitational at Riviera. It's a beautiful course. Uh, loaded field. Be sure and tune into that. And uh, now that the NFL is over, we'll continue to uh, hit some college basketball rankings pretty hard as we move forward towards March Madness. And then, of course, we'll take a look at some NBA and NHL standings updates uh, as we progress through the last quarter, last third of that season. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.